My name is Alex DeRosa, and I'm our Family Life Pastor, and I'm excited to be with you this morning to continue our summer-long series called One Thing Remains, where we're looking at the fact that everything in life that might be alluring, that might promise that it will stay true forever, will surely break or fail or leave us, except for God and His love, which will remain Forever. And as we've been talking about God's love, one of the things that keeps on appearing and repeating throughout God's word is his patience with us. God is so patient. We started this summer by talking about Jonah, a man who heard from God, heard his voice, and God told him to go to a certain place, and Jonah disobeyed and went somewhere else, but God was still patient and true to Jonah, which was amazing. And then Jonah finally did go and listen and went to these people, the Ninevites, to tell them about God's judgment. And even amidst that, God was being patient because these Ninevites were an evil nation that were going against what God wanted people to do. And God was still patient and allowed them to have this opportunity to repent and come back into his family. And God is patient with us as well. Every time we mess up, every time we screw up or fall, God is there to forgive and pick us back up. Today, no matter where you are on the spiritual continuum, whether you're at the very beginning, you're still questioning, you're wondering, is this real? Or you're living a spirit-led life every day, the Holy Spirit speaking to you and guiding you wherever you are. We still need this patient love of God. We need it in our lives to continue going, to be reminded that he's good even when we're not. And the other thing that has become clear as we've been going through this summer is that this love of God that he shows to us is the same love that we are called to love to one another, to show to everyone that we encounter. And this is clear in Hebrews chapter 6. It says, Our great desire is that you, meaning us, will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. I love that by loving other people, our, our spirituality, our relationship with God won't be dull. It'll end up like changing our lives and people will see that love in us and they will be drawing into God's presence. And it said by our faith, which Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see and endurance. And that word endurance is actually the Greek word makrothymia. It's a cool word. And it means patience and forbearance. So patience with people and an infinite capacity to be injured without paying back. What an incredible kind of love to be wronged and not to return evil with evil. And this specific patience is meant for people, not circumstances, so people. So having a long fuse with one another, we are called to have that kind of love with each other because it's the same kind of love that God shows us. Every time we fall, every time we sin, God is there to pick us back up and to forgive us. And as we look through the story of Ruth, which we're right in the middle of, we're in chapter 3 today, and we're going to read the whole thing together, and we're going to walk through it. But as we're in that, we are seeing this guy named Boaz, a true guy that lived on this earth, show this kind of love to a woman named Ruth. But before we get too far into it, let's recap Ruth a little bit in case you haven't been here for the first couple messages or you just want a refresher. So, so far in this story, we have heard that there's a guy named Elimelech and he took his wife Naomi and his two sons from God's 
country in Judah all the way to Moab. They did that because there was a famine in the land. So they got to Moab and then both their sons married. And their one son, Malon, or Machlon, which is probably how you pronounce it and way more fun to pronounce it that way. So if there's a discrepancy, just go what's more fun. So Machlon, well, in naming, not in life in general. Um, in naming, uh, you go Machlon and marries Ruth, which is amazing. Unfortunately, Machlon and his brother and his dad all pass away. And then Ruth decides to go back to God's country with her mother-in-law, Naomi, because God is blessing the people once again. So they go all the way. They do this long journey. They get there. And when they get there, they need to provide for one another. And that's not easy in that day and age for two women on their own to provide. So what they do is they go to, well, what Ruth does is she goes to a field and she participates in the gleaning laws. The gleaning laws stated that if someone, whether they were a foreigner or they were a widow, or whatever, if they went into a field, they could pick up the scraps. It's called gleaning, behind the, the harvester. So anything that fell on the ground, Ruth could pick up and keep. But this was a long, tedious work. And so eventually, though, she would have enough to go back home. But the field that she was working in was owned by a guy named Boaz. And this was an amazing guy who really cared for Ruth. So not only did he say, yeah, you can take what you have, but he said, you can take more than what's owed. They gave her more of the food to take home. And he also went to his men and said, make sure to protect and care for Ruth. He was having this patience with her. He wasn't getting mad or having this long fuse. Hey, you're taking my stuff, what we worked for. Instead, he was giving her more and more than what she was owed, just as God does for us. And so we're going to continue this story after they have this first encounter. Ruth is talking to her mother-in-law, Naomi, about, about Boaz and about what is going to come. But before we do that, why don't we pray? Dear God, right now, I pray that you will speak to us clearly through your words. I pray that right now that your Holy Spirit is working through this place. Draw us into a relationship with you. Draw us closer to you than we've ever been before. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your ability to, to not return evil with evil, but to love us even when we were your enemies. We love you. We thank you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start Ruth 3, and we're going to read verses 1 and 2. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. So a couple of things to know from this. At first, Naomi is saying that she wants to find Ruth a husband. Now, this isn't a situation where Naomi is tired of Ruth being at home. This isn't like, okay, you're in your mid-30s, get out of here, go get married. This is a situation where she was loving Ruth. She was saying, I want you to enjoy all the blessings that come from being in this married relationship. And then she says, there's good news. Boaz is a close relative. Now, if your mom would have come up to you at some point and said, hey, I have this perfect person for you to date. They're your cousin. You might be like, what? Like, mom, now I'm not doing that. And this is a different situation because in those days, the, the Jewish laws said that if your brother's wife was still living, but your brother was not living, then you could redeem her. You could become her family redeemer by bringing her back into the fold of the family. It was a blessing. It was also a sacrifice because everything that your brother had still belongs to her and her children. So you're taking them in knowing that you might not get all of the fruit of that, 
but that their kids will someday. But it was a kind thing. It was a blessing. And if that brother wasn't alive, or if you didn't have a brother, then it would go to another relative, a close relative, that could become the family redeemer. And you would go really systematically, whoever was the closest relative next. And it was this opportunity to serve and a sacrifice for someone else. Martin Manser in the Dictionary of Bible Themes talks about this family redeemer. He says, the relative who restores or preserves the full community rights of disadvantaged family members. The concept arises from God's covenant relationship with Israel and points to the redemption of humanity in Jesus Christ. So this family redeemer brings someone back into the fold of the family. It blesses them by bringing them back in and restores all their rights as a family member. But what Martin astutely pointed out is this family redeemer, this this idea really foreshadows what Jesus was about to do in our lives. That Jesus saw us separated from him, outside of his family, and we were created to be in the family of God. We find our purpose and our being and our identity in Jesus Christ because we were created to live and dwell, excuse me, dwell with him. Got ahead of my words there. We were created to be with God. And when we go away from him because of our sin, what happens is we are left alone. But Jesus came and he died on the cross and he rose again so that we could be entered into this relationship. And this is why our take-home point, which is the one point that the message hinges around, this is why the take-home point says this. Jesus is our family redeemer. Simply said, Jesus came to bring us back into the fold of his family because he loves us that much. So as we read this story, let's not only see it as this beautiful love story between a Moabite woman and an Israelite man. It's certainly that. But let's also look at it as us and Jesus. So let's put ourselves in Ruth's shoes and let's put Jesus in the shoes of Boaz. And as we do that, we'll get to learn a little bit more about why God loves us and how much he cares for us. And we do this because Boaz and Ruth foreshadow God's willingness to redeem humans so we can be a part of God's royal family forever. We get acceptance into God's family. So let's read what happens uh, between Boaz and Ruth, and let's look at it through our eyes as well. So now do as I tell you. This is Naomi talking to Ruth. Take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. Let's get it out of the way right away. That was weird. There's some weird stuff in there. This is like the world's weirdest first date that Naomi's setting Ruth up on. Like, strange advice. And so, some kind of background information. We usually pick our messages months in advance, and so we pick what what messages we're going to be reading through. So I I kind of picked it on the date, not because of the story. And then when I sat down last week to start reading it, I went, what? Like, what do you mean, uncover his feet? And then I was like, well, maybe I missed something. So I read it again, and I still 
confused, had no idea what it was talking about. But then I started to think, okay, well, my first dating experiences were kind of weird in retrospect as well. I mean, even take Rachel, who's now my wife, and me when we first met. We met at a summer camp for third through fifth graders, and we weren't third through fifth graders, though. Uh, that would have been cool. Like, uh, we, we knew each other our whole lives. That would have been nice. But it was still romantic because I was the, the speaker, and she was a counselor, and it was pretty cool. Throughout the week, I got to know the, the students and the, the counselors. And then the final day of the camp, I found out that Rachel wasn't in high school, that she was in college, which was a big thing because I was in my early 20s, and you can figure out why that's a big thing. And so I was like, wait a second, we can, I can go, I can go, you know, break out the smooth moves and go talk to her and uh, learn about her. So that night there was a bonfire that was to celebrate the week, and I thought, wow, what a great opportunity. So I was going to go talk to her, but then I thought maybe I should like break out some of my, uh, my wit first. And so instead of going right to her, I got this other director, his name is Aaron, and I said, why don't we play a game? called Alex is a Table. And so the game goes like this. Aaron would go and talk to someone, one of the guy counselors generally, or one of the older kids, and he would be in a conversation, and then I would get on all fours, and then I would go, like, literally right behind them, like this, and Aaron would then push the person over top of me, and they would fall, because I'm a table. And so they would fall on the ground, and then we would laugh and run away. And I... Kept doing this because I thought it was funny. And then I would like look to see if like Rachel was looking and sometimes she was. I don't know if she was laughing at me or with me. Either way, I thought I was succeeding because you make that like narrative in your head. And then like I found like enough courage to go over and talk and, and then, you know, like break out the cool moves. And uh, so we were, we were chatting. I found out that she didn't like coffee, found out where, where she was from, where she went to high school, where she goes to college at. And we had a good conversation. Then that night, I did the next smooth move I could think of. I added her on Facebook and, uh, and then added all the other female counselors too, um, which in retrospect might have felt weird, but in my mind it was like, oh hey, just, you know, just like casual, like to try to play it cool. And then I added her into a group chat with one of the other counselors, and again, I thought that was playing it cool, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, and so we talked. Eventually, I did finally ask her on a first date. It was over text message, which was a good move. But I did it, and then we, I said, hey, would you want to go grab a cup of coffee with me? And she said, remember, first time we talked, I told you I didn't like coffee. And I was like, oh, man, that's right. Uh, it has tea there, too. And so we, we got a, a coffee date with uh, tea and coffee, and, and it was nice. But one day, when I'm in heaven... And I interact with Boaz and Ruth, and I'm sure we will interact with Boaz and Ruth because we have all of eternity. And I start telling them about my first encounter with Rachel. They're going to be like, what are you talking about? Like, what are you, why were you a table? What is a bonfire? Tell me about a coffee shop now. We wouldn't know the, co- they wouldn't know the context because they aren't living right now. So for us, what we got to do is dive into the context of the society at that time to understand what Ruth and Naomi were up to when they were scheming to go to Boaz. So I did some research on a walk it through with you. So the first thing that we can see is that Boaz was probably in a good mood because it was time that he was on the threshing floor, which meant the harvest time was over and now the food was going to come in. So this is a good time. So he was probably in a good mood. So Naomi was being strategic and saying, why don't you go during this time? And the other thing that she says is go and, and wash up, which makes sense to us, right? Like you wash up, you put perfume on, probably because she was in the, uh, the fields all day working. She probably was all stinky. And so you got to wash up, make sure you smell nice and put your best foot forward. And then it says to wear your nicest clothes. Now, I kind of 
glaze blast that the first couple of times, thinking like, oh, I know what that means. You put on your nicest outfit, maybe, maybe Ruth puts on her best dress, whatever it is, to go and impress. But in fact, the translation in Hebrew from nicest clothes literally means a large outer garment that obscured. So what it meant is that she was coming this big overcoat that like, covered your face so no one would know who she was. And that was actually a sign of respect. She was going into this time where if anyone saw her go in, they wouldn't know if it was Ruth or who it was. And so if Boaz turns her down, there'd be no embarrassment for either of them. So that's kind of a nice thing. Naomi also knew that he would be sleeping at the threshing floor. And this was because he would want to protect the grain that they worked so hard to get. So a couple of things make sense. And then she's in there. So she must have snuck in there because it said, don't let him see you and then watch as he eats. And I don't know why that is. Like there's literally no reason for that. I don't know. Maybe she was like trying to see if he was like an open mouth chewer or something and like was going to like call it quits. And like, ah, actually your manners are pretty bad. So I'm going to walk away. But she hid somewhere behind some grain. I don't know. She hid while he ate and then she watched as he laid down and then she went and curled up at his feet. This is also one of the most like, disputed parts in all of like, the, the scholarly texts that I was able to read. People weren't exactly sure the reason behind this. There might have been a Moabite practice that like, she kind of was adding to this right here. But everyone does agree on one thing. What she was doing was she was submitting herself to his authority. She was going to his feet and saying, if you want to marry me, you can. She was being as forward as she could in that culture. It wasn't generally acceptable for a woman to go up to a man and say, hey, do you want to marry me? Do you want to be my family redeemer? That didn't happen. And so this was her way of going to his feet and saying, when you wake up and you see me here, if you want to marry me, I'm right here, and we could do that. And so Ruth follows the instructions, and we're going to see that she does it. So Ruth 3 continues. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. And then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He, he was surprised to find a woman laying at his feet, which you would be, right? Like if you went to sleep on grain, as one does, and you wake up and there's uh, someone at your feet, strange, right? Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, I, I am your servant Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Again, I don't know if... If Ruth wasn't able to be identified because she was still wearing her overcoat, or if he just was like, you know, tired and, and woke up and saw her. But either way, we can look at this and see more about our relationship with Jesus. We've already noticed that God and us have this relationship because God wants to be our family redeemer, that he died and rose again for us. But the second way that we relate is that Boaz had already put down the groundwork. He was protecting and caring for Ruth. He made sure that she had everything that she needed. And so he was, in effect, wooing Ruth to himself. But Ruth needed to go and choose Boaz. We're going to get into a little bit more of why she needed to choose him in a moment. But she needed to choose him. She needed to make that choice. And so she went and put herself at his feet. And the same thing is true in our life. Our God woos us to him. Make no mistake, he's working right now and he's drawing us into himself. He is constantly being persistent so that we would come to know him as Lord and Savior. But we must come to a point where we take the choice in our own hands and say, I want to follow you, God. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. We can know about him all we like, but until we choose him to be our savior and our Lord, our master over all of our lives, we don't have that relationship that he's designed for us to have. We must make the choice. 
Frank Turek in his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, says this, God gives us the opportunity either to love him or to reject him without violating our freedom. In fact, the purpose of this life is to make the choice freely and without coercion. For love, by definition, must be freely given. It cannot be coerced. In the same way, Boaz wasn't forcing Ruth to marry him. He was loving and she was choosing. Same thing, God's not forcing us. He's giving us the opportunity to choose him. C.S. Lewis put it this way. The irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of God's schemes forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do would be for him useless. He cannot ravish He can only woo. God calls us to himself, but he doesn't force us to follow him. He could have created us as robots that have to love him, but then that's not love. So instead, he created us with the ability to choose to follow him, but that leaves it up to us to make the decision if we want to follow and be in this love relationship with our family redeemer. I know you might have asked before, like, because I certainly have, like, God, why don't you just show up right now in the sky and let us all know that you're real. Why don't you just show up in like a pillar of fire occasionally so that we know you're there? Truth is, he could do that, absolutely. But for us, would it be us then going, oh, I love you, thank you for this fire? Or would it be, oh man, I'm so scared, I have to do it. God wants us to love him. God wants us to follow him on our own decision and not because we're forced to. And also, there's just the truth that as humans, we would be like, all right, God, I'm following you now. And then two days later, we'd say, all right, God, remember when you did the fire? Could you do that again? Because I just need a little extra help. We see this when Jesus was on the earth. He was doing all these miracles, and people kept coming up and being like, hey, can you do one more, please? We just want to see a little bit more until finally Jesus was saying, I'm not going to give you any more signs. Because there's a point where God wants us to make that step of faith, to say, I follow you, God. We can know about him, but he wants us to know him. And when we do know him, when we go to this relationship, we get all the blessings of the covering of God. We get the Almighty to walk alongside us in life, that will guide us on our paths, that will speak to us, that will show us his kingdom as it comes to earth. We get the blessing of being united with the creator and we get to, to understand how we were designed to be. This is what Boaz was actually being asked for by Ruth. Ruth was asking for the protection of Boaz. We can see that because last week, Pastor Chris read this in Ruth 2.12. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. This refuge, we can come under God's wings as well. And then this week we read in Ruth 3, 9, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Ruth wasn't just saying, hey, I'm cold, give me a blanket. What she was saying is cover me with your protection. We know that because the same word for corner is the same word for wing in the Hebrew language. So she's actually saying to him what she just heard him say to her about God. She's saying, I want you to be the owner of my life to be my master, to to take control, to be my family redeemer. And that's the same thing that we must go to God and ask for as well. So Boaz hears this. He's kind of like rubbing the sleepies out of his eyes, and he responds. Well, I don't know if he did that, but let's say he did. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. And just so we know, when he says my daughter, he doesn't actually think this is his daughter, mind you. This is, that just means 
that she was younger than him. Just, you probably jumped to that conclusion already, but just wanted to clarify. You are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now, don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight. In the morning, I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until the morning. So Boaz compliments and he honors Ruth. He says, thank you for not going after a younger, richer man. Thank you for coming to me. Because here's the truth. Ruth could have just cut ties with the family. She had the ability to. She could have said, see Naomi, I'm going to go and find someone rich or younger so I don't have to go glean in the fields anymore. I want to go and find someone else to marry. And in doing so, she would forsake all the rights that Mahlon had and his, his future kids would have and all of that stuff. She would go away from it, but she could have done it. But instead, she went to Boaz. And what Boaz talked about, about there's another family redeemer, that's why it was so important for Ruth to choose Boaz. Because by the law, whoever was closest to you must have the first opportunity, and we'll see more of that next week, to redeem you. But instead of going to that person, she chose to go to Boaz. And this shows us our relationship with God as well. Because as much as God is there and he wants to redeem us and he wants us to be in a relationship with him, it is a choice. We either go to him or we can give our ownership of our lives to something else. We can forego his love and forgiveness and his safety and his security and the identity we get from him by going somewhere else. We can worship ourselves or our hobbies or our job or our relationships. And it is worship, mind you. We were created to worship, so we're going to worship something. So we can worship other things or we can choose to worship God and come under the wing of the one who can give us that protection that only he can give us with the love that is the only thing that remains through all of history. But we have to go to that point where we say, all right, I'm giving and forsaking everything else, and I'm going towards God. So this is what Ruth is doing, in effect. She's saying, all right, I know there might be other family redeemers, but I'm choosing you, Boaz. And so they have this interaction, and then Boaz shows how he's going to continue to protect and provide for her. In Ruth 3.14, it continues, So Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning. But she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. And then he returned to the town. What an amazing example Boaz is. Not only did he woo her to a point where she says, I choose you, but after she chose him, he continued to care and provide for her. And this is the same thing that God does for us as well. Using my life as an example, I can look back in my earliest days that I can remember of of my Aunt Nisi, who's always been a follower of Jesus. And I remember her inviting us to VBS when we were little. And that was God, again, wooing me to him. And then I remember being on the bus and God put my friend Ted right where he could invite me to youth group. God is still working in that And then I go to youth group, and the very next week, Jamie, who was my youth pastor, came. He was hired right after I started coming, and I know that this was God working because Jamie had a profound impact on my life. And then the very night that I trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, my two best friends that were going to be there that night couldn't make it last minute. And I know in that moment now that God was taking away all of my distractions 
He was releasing my handholds so that I could focus completely on God and his salvation, his forgiveness, and his love. And that moment, I gave my life over to him. But after that, God didn't stop. I look back at my life after that and my first job in ministry at a church before I came to New Life. I was able to preach on the weekends and do hospital visits and and work with the students in the, the children's ministries. And I know now that he was preparing me for the job I'm stepping into currently. And then whenever God put Rachel in my life, I know it was him because I did all the wrong moves and we still got married. So I know that God was orchestrating that situation. And then even when it came to come to new life, I was already at a different church. And initially, I didn't know if that's where God wanted us. But God put my friend Mark in my way and Justin and Tammy, who encouraged me to come to new life. And he put them in the place to see his will done. And so every step, he was giving me the opportunity to choose him over what I wanted to do. Then even up until last year, where we concluded as, as a staff that we were going in the direction of me being our next lead pastor, it was another opportunity where I look at, and God was releasing my handholds and allowing me to focus completely on him to make a decision for him. And all throughout my journey, God was still wooing me to him. And the same is true with you. God doesn't stop. He continues to be in your life. He continues to move you closer into relationship with you. He continues to bring up opportunities for you to choose to give more and more of our lives over to him. You see, God calls us to himself and continuously honors his commitment as our family redeemer. It's not a one-time thing. It's an always thing with our God. And so after Ruth and Boaz have kind of made this agreement that they're going to be together as long as this other person says no to redeeming, What happens is Ruth goes and tells Naomi all of what happened. She's so excited. And I can remember that same feeling after my first date with Rachel. I went to play basketball right after. And I saw my friend Kyle Lutz. And I went right up to him. And I was like, I think she's the one. And even after I trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, I went right to my youth pastor and said, "I, I gave my life over to Jesus. I was excited. And Ruth is excited here as well. It says this, when Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, what happened, my daughter? Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her. And she added, he gave me these six scoops of barley and said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Smooth move, Boaz. Uh, that was good. Then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. Same thing with our God. I love that last verse because it encapsulates our relationship with him. He won't rest until he finishes things. He won't rest until we are in this relationship with him and that we've given everything we have over to him so we can be in our perfect relationship with God the Father. So we can know for sure who we were created to be. So we can walk from his miracles, his miracles, so we can hear his voice every day, so we can see his kingdom come and change lives on this earth. God's not going to stop. He's going to continue to pursue us. But for us, what we must do is ask a simple question. It's not, again, it's not one of those easy questions, but it's simple. We must look at each area of our lives and ask this simple question. Have I given control of everything over to my Lord? Because make no mistake, our God does do amazing things for us, but he doesn't want to just be a genie in our life that answers your quest. He wants to be our Lord, our master. He wants the name on the title of our lives to no longer say Alex Rosa, but to say Jesus Christ. He wants to own all of it, our hobbies, our desires, our goals, our relationships, our job, 
all of that, he wants to be the director of. Why? Because he knows what's best for us. He sees all of creation. All time and space is his. So he sees all of it, and he wants to guide us and direct us into his perfect plan for our lives. But in order to completely understand that, we must submit to his will. And that's not an easy thing. But by doing so, we'll get so many blessings from that macrothymia God, that God that takes away our sins, that picks us back up, that makes us who he has created us to be. And so as I've been walking this journey, and it is a journey, it's a lifelong fight of giving our lives over to him. There's been a couple of things that stand out as helpful to giving our lives over. The first one was given to me by Pastor Chris a couple months ago. Chris told me that what he's been doing is in the mornings he's been kneeling down and saying, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I submit to you. So I've been saying a similar prayer, and I wanted to share it with you in case you wanted to adapt it or adopt it into your life. I say this, Father, I submit to you as your child. Jesus, I submit to you as your subject and disciple. Subject because he's our king and disciple because he's our rabbi. And Holy Spirit, I submit to you as your servant. It's been helping put my mind in the right frame to go about my day, to know that everything I have actually belongs to him. And the second thing that's been helping, and it's been a humongous help, is an accountability partner. Pastor Chris last year talked in a series called If I Had a Do-Over. Part three of that series was about accountability. If you weren't here then or if you want to refresh on it, you can look at it on our app or the website. But accountability partners are there so that they can help us move closer to who God has created us to be. So a couple helpful things about if you desire to get into one of these relationships. You keep that person consistent, you meet consistently, and you don't hold back. And as you do that, they can call you out for things. Like, hey, you're worrying an awful lot about that thing. God must not own that yet. That must still be yours. Or in your life when you're saying, I'm struggling with something, they'll pray for you and they'll encourage you, they'll text you through the week and say, how are you doing about giving that over to God? And through that, that's helped me to realize that I don't need to be in control. I'm at my best when he's in control of my life. So it's given me the permission over and over to give up and to release my handholds on this life and allow God to take control. So if we want to do that, if we want to give God the ownership of our lives, if we want to change the name of the title of our lives to Jesus, we could do that with this next step. I will give ownership of my life over to Jesus this week. And by doing that, by giving ownership, we get to experience life as it was designed to live. Our next step this week is to allow Jesus to take ownership of our lives. And if you haven't given Jesus ownership of your life yet, today's the day. You know, when we give Jesus ownership of our lives, it does not mean that suddenly everything is going to be great, that life is going to be easy. If anything, it could potentially be the opposite of that. And if you're anything like me these days, life is hard. There's some really hard stuff happening right now. But even in the midst of that, God is in control and God is with you. And for me, that is such a relief to know that I don't have to have it all together, that God has it all together, and that I can just rest in Him and trust in Him. And if you haven't trusted Him, you are missing out because to have the Creator of the universe holding you in His hands, just how could we not give up everything to Him? So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to pray a prayer of salvation either pray it with me or you can say it in your own words because here what we do at New Life is we say it's simple but it's not easy. It's as simple as ABC. A, we admit that we're sinners and that we need Jesus as our Lord and Savior. 
and B, we believe. We believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And C, we confess. We confess Him as our Lord and Savior, and we commit to following Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you would, pray this with me now or in your own words. Dear God, I admit that I am a sinner, Lord, and that I need Jesus to take ownership of my life. I need him to help me out, Lord. I need him to save me, to rescue me. And I believe, God, that Jesus is my savior. And God, I believe that he is your son, that he came to this earth and died on the cross for my sins, and that he died and rose on the third day. And I confess that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and God, I commit to following him by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I give you ownership now. I give Jesus ownership of all that I am and all that I ever will be, Lord. And I thank you for this wonderful gift. It's in your son Jesus' name that I pray.